this is the closing symposium. Uh, like I said this morning, our motto is uh, to listen, to learn, and to speak. Uh, hopefully you got a chance to do a little bit of all three today. Uh, and I do hope for this session to involve uh, all three things as well. Um, with that, we will uh, let uh, the far more qualified than I, Sarah Hillware, uh, take, take over moderation of the symposium. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. And uh, thank you for, for organizing Unfunded University. It's been a great day of um, really substantive learning. So I'm honored to moderate the final session. And um, just to introduce myself, I am actually the founder of a nonprofit. Um, it's called Girls Health Ed, and we provide health education um, to low-income girls and young women in four countries and nine cities across the globe. Um, I have been a founder now for seven years. So um, it's, it's great to be here. Oh, oh thanks. <laughs> um, and fun fact, Girls Health Ed was actually on the first uh, unfunded list. So, and I'm Dave's founding board member. Um, and uh, so enough about me. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to get into today's panel. Um, we have some great, uh, great folks with us here today. Um, and I'll let them introduce themselves, um, starting with Chris. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Troll. I'm uh, the founder of Chris Troll Fundraising. I'm a small boutique development firm here in DC. I uh, work with nonprofits and political candidates, progressive political candidates, um, traditionally Democrats. So, uh, I'm Peter Williamson. I am a professional golfer turned social entrepreneur. Um, new to the DC area, I just started a business around using non-digital gamification uh, to create empathy in communities. Um, I'm Mally Locke. I'm a philanthropy advisor, um, and I've had the privilege of working um, in multiple, uh, uh, under multiple governance structures from private foundations to family foundations to nonprofits to um, now, now doing uh, philanthropy advising for ultra high net worth individuals and families. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. Um, honored to have you here. So how this is going to go, I'm going to ask each of the panelists uh, a couple questions, and then we will open it up to the, uh, to the audience, to the class, um, to then continue the conversation. Um, and the idea here today is that this is much more of a conversation um, so that they can learn um, you know, from you and you can learn from them, um, and we can all learn from each other. So I'm going to start with you, Chris. OK. okay. So. Uh, what are some of the lessons uh, that you have learned raising money for um, political causes and candidates, and how do you think those lessons sort of carry over into the nonprofit world and vice versa? I think I think most recently the biggest thing is around this idea around corporate PAC money, mm -hmm. and um, and I think what's fascinating about it is that corporate PAC money isn't necessarily corporate PAC money in the you sense that. Yeah, PAC. Uh, corporate PAC money isn't necessarily corporate. This is DC. Oh, sorry, uh, po Political Action Committee. Um, and, and Political Action Committee is an entity that was created after, in, after the 70s, after Watergate. Uh, political Action Committees were created to kind of limit a entity's influence on a, an election. And the most an entity can give to, from a PAC to a campaign is $5,000 per election. So $5,000 primary, $5,000 general. But the way the Federal Election Commission qualifies these, the, 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 the PAC is that there's three areas. There's ideological, corporate, and, and um, labor. So literally, anything that's not ideological and labor falls from this corporate, corporate um, umbrella. But I say all that to say that um, in the last year and a half, two years, um, it, it kind of has developed this, this awful 
bad idea. It, it, it's kind of like we're not. If you're running for office, we're not taking we're not taking corporate PAC money, and or whatever whatever kind of road that they go down. And what, what what's fascinating about that is that you're not taking you know funds from an entity. You're not taking corporate profits. You're taking the the five dollar checkoff from, from Sally that works as as a as a, as an employee of that pack, and it, it's one of those things where the the narrative around it has gotten so convoluted that you have you have you know people that are they're now making decisions based on budgets mm -hmm. over misinformation, and I think from a, from the political side it's fascinating because you had a, a wave of you had a wave of freshmen come in last year. On this anti-corporate PAC money pledge, and I granted, in, in fairness, I mean, you know, the way the classification is set up, that's it's the same classification from, you know, you know, General Motors as it would be from the Human Rights Campaign, you know. But um, but I think one of the biggest lessons is that you know, if you you really want to do your research in this before you before you kind of start going down one of these roads, and I think you know I think that applies you know if you're running a political campaign. Or if you're running a, um, or if you're running a, uh, a nonprofit. I mean, you know, when you're talking about funding, when you're talking about who you're getting money from, and who you're, who's who's really willing to make an investment in you, you want to do the research on it because mm -hmm. I mean, I think that you're often, you know, sometimes you are you're opening yourself up to to scenarios that you don't want to take money from, mm -hmm. or you're leaving money on the table because you didn't think about things in a big enough picture. So yeah. I, I would say that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the years, um, is that research is key. I mean, right. and and you know and it's really important to um, it's really important to pay pay attention to where your money is coming from and and how much and how much influence you know how much influence that you know that particular check you know goes into your big picture decision making yeah so. absolutely and I, I think that's a great lesson I, I think that is uh, you know as a founder oftentimes we we think of research and we think of programs right, right. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's definitely important to remember that we also need to apply the same amount of rigor um, to, when, when it comes to fundraising. So. Um, all right, so thank you very much. Um, I'm going to move on to you now, Peter. Uh, so from your perspective, uh, having reviewed proposals for your family foundation, um, you know, what would you say is the biggest mistake that nonprofits make when seeking grant funding? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a really interesting question because <clears throat> the family right now, so I'm a generation five of the family foundation. It's based out of Ohio. Um, and we've got um, sort of an inflection point with some of the new generation members coming in. And I think we're still trying to answer that question ourselves. And so um, organizations that come in disorganized into a disorganized system right. are not going to, they're not going to be viewed uh, probably properly or well. Um, and they're not going to be seen well by the family just because of our own disorganization. So um, I think just being able to explain themselves concisely, um, why it matters in a geographic area that might not be relevant to where we live as a, as a group, right. um, those kinds of things are, are, are really simple. It's real, I mean, if you, if you knock out the simple things, it's amazing how far that takes you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, all right. So, Mally. Um, now I'm going to move to you, um, and I'd love to ask you a little bit about your experience advising philanthropists. Um, so given that you've advised donor-advised funds, um, what would you say are probably the biggest issue, uh, issue interest areas that you've seen um, for funders as of late? You know, what are, what are some of the trends? What are some of the pain points? Um, well, uh, 
I'll just clarify. I advise philanthropists of all kinds. It doesn't matter if they have a foundation or a donor advised fund okay. or, or anything. But but that is a, an important point is that many of them are using um, different giving vehicles than they mm -hmm. were historically. So a lot of people have moved away from saying that they want to have their own family foundation or um, a specific pool of money that they're drawing from. Rather, they're drawing from multiple pools of money mm -hmm. um, in multiple structures. And then they're also using them in um, deploying that capital in different ways. Uh, for example, um, really, uh, I mean, everyone talks about impact investing, um, but it really is growing in momentum. And I think that that is actually a very positive thing because it gets people to use their, their funding in different ways, um, such as uh, I've been really encouraging some of the people that I work with to think about um, either taking equity stakes in certain organizations mm -hmm. or just providing um, low interest or zero interest loans for business development, growth, mm -hmm. research, um, operations, anything like that, because that really, that that's necessary for organizations yeah. to run and they that's usually the area that no one wants to give to. Right. Um, another thing is uh, in capacity building in general, I feel like that's also a very positive trend that I've been seeing is that people realizing that this development or, or the um, overhead myth at right. the, uh, that I think, I wish I remembered the guy's name. Um, anyway, uh, there was a TED talk on the overhead myth a few years ago. I can't remember what the guy's name is, but uh, I think that that's taking off that people realize that this idea that you're only supposed to spend X percent on program and then X percent on admin and X percent on, on development is kind of um, arbitrary. Um, and, and depending on the, what the issue area that, you're, um, that the organization is working in, you know, those numbers may not make sense. Mm -hmm. So um, just giving more to the organization in terms of um, unrestricted dollars or specifically in capacity building, um, yeah. those are trends that I've been seeing. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and it's actually, I'm, I'm sure, encouraging to hear for, I, I know it is for me as a founder and, and maybe for some, for some of you who are founders or prospective founders out there that, um, you know, funders are wanting to move towards funding operational expenses because that is extremely important. Um, so that's. Can I ask a, just to clarify, yeah. so you have like the clients at Milton are saying we want to get more unrestricted grants. Yeah, awesome. we we always Excellent. we all of our folks we encourage a hundred percent to only give unrestricted dollars wow. as part of our advisory like. Uh, our ethos as a, as a group, we always say give unrestricted. There are certain cases, of course, when you can't if you're giving a research grant, yeah. or even if you're giving a research grant, we say they can use the research dollars for equipment, they can use it for, for, for lab hours, they can use it however they want, um, because we part of our service is to educate them on the realities of what what all of that looks like. You know, right. you give them X percent for to run a program, you don't give them any room to innovate or to um, to actually use those dollars in the most effective ways possible. So yeah. part of my job is to, t to illuminate those re those challenges for for uh, philanthropists as well. Absolutely. Did I hear you say that you give loans versus grants? You said zero percent loans. You would, or do they also provide grant money? I, I I was saying that they I. I um, recommend that they use their capital in all kinds of ways. So grants is definitely one of them, but I'm also encouraging them to do loans. Uh, again, it could be you know 10-year, 0% interest loans, right. or um, actually loans that um, uh, eventually just wipe themselves out. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a different way of using the same type of money. Right, yeah, thank you. Um, 
So Chris, I'll, I'll come back to you, um, and I want to switch gears a little bit to, to talk, uh, talk, talk more about um, the funding landscape and um, you know, specific issues that, 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 it, that it seems people are interested in funding. Um, and my question for you is that given that, that you've fundraised um, you know, for quite, quite a few causes that people may see as sensitive, um, you know, what advice do you have for, for people who may be trying to fundraise for an issue area um, that, that, that is not going to always be well received by all audiences? We, um, I, I recently had a client called the Institute of Current World Affairs, and it's a 100-year-old it's a organization that was started um, at the, um, right at kind of the outset of the Wilson administration. And their goal, originally, 100 years ago, was to send people overseas to study abroad. Basically, um, you know, to learn about, you know, Americans had outside of going to war, uh, Americans hadn't really spent a lot of time overseas and, and learning about different cultures. Um, and then over the last 80 plus years or so, uh, it's, it's now shifted as kind of this jumping off point for, for scholars. I say that to say that um, they started a capital campaign in the last, you know, five years or so. Um, their previous executive director left them with a pretty hefty endowment and they've slowly started to spend it down. So I was brought on a year and a half ago to help talk about big picture fundraising. And we're not solving anything. We're not, we're not, we're literally sending people overseas to, to research and write for two years. Mm. Um, it's been a, um, it, it's been a, a, a task in getting, in getting funders to pay attention and I think uh, I mean, it, it goes back to um, I mean I think it goes back to my original point which is research but it also goes back to big picture deliverables like what are you what are you investing in and the, and the argument we've made to, 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 to funders is that you're investing in the future you're investing in, a, in that next generation of leaders and that next generation of, um, of writers and researchers and I mean and, and what's great about ICWA's history is that um, you know, you, you've you, you had you had individuals that went to work for various administrations over the years that helped open you know in, that that based on their experience as an ICWA fellow, they um, they took that later on in life. I mean, yeah. we, you know, so I think in that regard, we've been able to kind of push forward you know a, a, a narrative, a leadership narrative. But I, I think that is. Um, I think the biggest piece is is what's in the deliverable. What what is it you know? And I think you know, I think if you can't really succinctly talk about what that deliverable is, it's really hard to to talk, think about funding. And and I, I've seen that on a on 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 the much lower level with a with a candidate with a campaign. I mean, like, what are you trying to accomplish? You can't just choose to run for office because you're bored. Right. You know, what is it you want to accomplish? What is it you want to do? And then from the nonprofit standpoint, you know, what is it your organization? Is, you know, how are you impacting change? How are you? And I think that I think what's you know what, what's fascinating right now is you are seeing kind of that that big societal impact. It's it's not just you know it's not just you know. Like this is fun. Let's do it. It's like you people want to see their money is going somewhere. You want to you want to yeah. see that they're you know, and I, I think that's been um, I think that's been kind of the most eye opening piece of it is, is seeing how it is kind of all fundamentally intertwined. Right. So right. So so sort of um, taking taking that funder into your vision of the future. Right. Exactly. Painting that picture for them. Because I mean yeah. everyone that one funder. I mean that, if if you're if you're giving at a certain level, that one funder is fielding 
proposals from absolutely tons of people. Yeah. So what makes you stand out? Yeah. And um, you know, and we we randomly found a grant that was based out of Greece, mm -hmm. um, that um, that does um, that that basically does youth development. Yeah. And they they chose to give us you know you know a, a multi year grant for twenty thousand dollars every year for two years, but it was a, it was a random research that we found. So it you know so it's like the, the opportunities are out there, but it is it is a matter of making that funder see like what they're getting from that investment right so. right absolutely and, and 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 that's a key word i think thinking about it as an investment because i think oftentimes in this space you know we we think about oh you know we're doing this because it feels good or oh you know we're, we're we're starting this organization because because we think it looks good but thinking about it as, as an investment that has real impact that has a real outcome and with something like ICWA, like yeah. you're not you're not studying the AIDS crisis in Africa. I mean, like we had we had someone that came back that that literally that was over two years that was studying um, Boko Haram for two mm. years, and that was all she was doing, just talking about you know women and girls development, you know, in a culture where Boko Haram was literally taking people and right. putting them into the jungle, yeah. um, and that's what she did for two years. Yeah. And she comes, she she's now back. But so it's like you're not you're you're dealing with big picture issues, but you're not you're not creating solutions. Right. So when, when you have an organization that is kind of nebulous in that regard, it, yeah. it, I think the investment piece becomes really key because right. you, you do have to have that buy and you do have to, you do have to have something that makes that, 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 that donor and that funder feel like they're, they're getting, you know, they're, they're getting something back they're, or, or they're putting something in there. So, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's a great point. Um, thank you for that. Um, so Peter, I would love to ask you about your about your game um, for for the philanthropy space. So, can you tell us a little bit about Game Genius and how did you come up with that idea? Yeah, so it's a really good segue and um, about <laughs> sort of storytelling and trying to get that creative angle out of both the funder and fundee. Um, game Genius is sort of a I like to explain it as the three circles then diagram of my life. And so, <laughs> golf and games is something that. I, I'm very passionate about. I learned growing up through games. My parents were, were really into that as a teaching methodology. Um, I studied architecture in school and so really into designing spaces that make people think a little bit differently. So less commercial residential, more spatial uh, experience architecture. And then um, a part of the Family Foundation and having that knowledge of both sides of, of giving. Um, trying to put those all together and think how can we get people to think about funding and fundraising as more of a storytelling exercise and how can we make that fun? Yeah. Um, I know especially in our foundation going through this sort of next generation exercise, um, the, the people that don't have as much power in the family, they don't see this as a fun, a fun exercise. They don't have a ton of voting rights. They don't, have, they don't, they don't get to do a, a ton, but they do get to review proposals. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're just not the final decision maker. And so they right. see this as a very laborious process that doesn't really result in anything for them. And so how can we make that process fun on, on sort of the, the foundation side? But then on the other side, you know, how can we tell this story in a way that makes everyone feel like it's worth funding? Like it's, um, you know, they can get into that process, feel empowered by supporting this group, feel educated by learning about what this group does and then applying it to their own life in some way. Mm -hmm. So Game Genius is all about you know, trying to leverage people's creativities and the skills that they have um, to be able to tell that story, whether it is themselves as the nonprofit director trying to 
to leverage their own their own resources and, and products, or it's someone in the community that might not feel like they can be a philanthropist to say, yes, you can be. Create this game that creates awareness or creates empathy in the community that helps generate funding. Yeah, wonderful. And uh, just a quick follow-up question. So is this game geared towards um, users who are founders or geared towards funders or both? So it's not particularly one game. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's basically the ideology that games and non-digital gamification can get people around a table and communicating again. And that's sort of the piece that we're really trying to pull out is this idea that instead of you know, being on Twitter or any of your social media platforms, which have great reach, really getting people face to face to sort of build that personal empathy around, oh, you've gone through the story, that's amazing. Okay, I wanna learn more about that. And if you do that in a fun environment like a game, people are a little bit more receptive. Um, right. And so you can talk about some more difficult issues. You have to be respectful, but you can talk about more uh, difficult issues in, in a little bit of a different angle that uh, lowers some barriers. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting because uh, I just spoke to someone last week who does um, fundraising in the criminal justice mm. space, and they have, actually we're trying to bring it here, um, a, a parolee experience game. Mm. Um, it's exactly my, my reaction was kind of like how does how does that work? But they get all types of people, many of them uh, uh, high net worth individuals as as well, foundation uh, program officers, etc., to go through this game, um, and it's based at 100% on the experiences of people who have been put out on who have been uh, incarcerated and subsequently on parole, and they actually act as the judges in this mm. game, and uh, they go through what real experiences are and you know yeah. it's actually fascinating wow. um, unfortunately there's only this one woman who currently has the license for it okay. but um, we're trying to actually bring an experience here to DC because it's fascinating mm -hmm. and, and exactly it's about yeah. lowering yeah. and it giving people oh wow this is a first-hand experience of what that's like and it, it really blows people away that's awesome um, that seems like the very intentional example of like nothing for us without us having the parolees be the judges because right. I definitely have heard of like uh, organizations who've like built uh, this is what it's like in a developing country trailers and brought them around to churches. So what was the process like making sure that like the game get to gamify something also was representative and wasn't just making uh, light of a situation and that the parolees were actually having a deep. I I, oh, okay. I I didn't develop it, so I'm. I, I, so, but I but this was a woman who worked in um, in um, a she was a defense attorney and she worked in the prison system for many years. Yeah. So she she actually did include them all in the process because otherwise it could be um, exploitive, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Um. Uh. But but apparently that's not the case. That's awesome. Well, that's really great. And um. You know. I think that's that's actually a, a really interesting segue. Your question um, to the question I, I have for you, and um, you know, when I so oftentimes when I think about um, nonprofits, and then I think about philanthropy, you know, sometimes I you know I personally see a disconnect, um, and I think there are a lot of other people here who see a disconnect, which is part of the reason why unfunded lists exist, right? To to to, to kind of help um, you know close that gap. Um, and, and my question for you is really around capacity building. Yeah. Um, so, you know, working, working with funders, working in philanthropy, um, you know, what are some of the big pain points that you're seeing in terms of, um, you know, how they operate and how they're actually getting to 
um, you know, to, to reach the people who are working on the issues that they want to fund? Uh, that's a great question. I think that, um, and, and going back to your point, making sure that everyone treats social issues uh, with, with sensitivity um, is really important, and, and, and also making sure that the people that I work with over the period of time that I work with them, I feel like it's my responsibility to bring them closer to people and to issues as opposed to seeing them from afar. Yeah. Um, because unfortunately that has been the history of philanthropy to sort of say, you over there, I'm gonna throw this money at you and tell you what to do with it, mm -hmm. as opposed to seeing you as really the architect of your own future and being able to actually say, this is how I think our community or our issue needs to use these dollars. Yeah. Um, and so really trying to um, to make sure that that power imbalance, which is naturally there, we trying to level that out and really trying to spend a lot of time educating the people that I work with yeah. on both sides, actually, yeah. um, and trying to be that bridge builder between those two universes. Right. Um, I think it's it's a it's a privilege to have this this role. It's also um, a reminder of how. Uh, um, segregated our society is socioeconomically um, yeah. you know people really have no idea how other people live um, and and again this this idea that because you have money you have knowledge is not actually the case um, uh, so the capacity is about you know being actually educated on the issues that you think you're educated on um, making sure people actually understand the real issues facing people um, that, you know, and, and trying to remove that, the stereotypes and the othering that, that happens um, between groups of people. Um, that's where I see the, the greatest need. And then, then everything else kind of falls into place after that. Right, yeah. Maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely still an idealist, so, so uh, um, take everything with a grain of salt, but I find that once you break down those barriers, people do start to listen more. Listening maybe is the, the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a great one actually. Um, and 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 I think on you know in, in all realms of life you know we, we need to listen a lot better. Um, so with that that great response, I would love to open it up to the floor um, to see what questions you all have for our panelists. Um, I'm I guess the gaming. Can you give us an example of one um, and how that works? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I'll, give you, I'll give you two because I'm in the mind space right now. Uh, there's an event currently going on. Um, but I've been working with a bunch of um, high school teenagers um, up in Bethesda. And they have been doing research projects on stress, toxicity mm -hmm. of teen life. Um, and they did a whole bunch, you know, kind of across the gambit of different research projects. And um, I was tapped by one of the teachers there to help them turn that into a museum um, that has sort of a gamified element to it so that people come into this and feel like they can be interactive with a lot of their research. And it, it turns that listening and it, it becomes a conversation. It's less of a sort of a lecture from student to class or teacher to class and more of a how can we do this together and how can we come up with solutions together. So something like that. It doesn't need a lot. Just kind of tweak things here and there to push the message you know, in a way that really resonates with the players. I, we, I talked to an Olympic snowboarder who had a huge accident and hit his head. He, 
Um, and he started a foundation that's all about traumatic brain injuries and, and all about that. And so they had a golf tournament and, and they were asking for ways to make their message stick. And so we said, well, bring out a balance board, bring out you know, beer goggles or something that sort of it gets in the way of your, of your vision um, and, and makes you more of an uncoordinated person as you play this, as play the sport to really give people an understanding of what it feels like to be you know, with a, have a traumatic brain injury. Um, and so things like that, it's not, that's not a huge lift for a lot of folks to be able to do that on one or two holes. And, and they'll walk away from it being like, whoa, okay, I might not be able to do this thing that I love um, as well or at all. Uh, and so those kinds of things, I think are, I would love to be able to influence, you know, a, a golf fundraiser, which is traditionally, um, that they don't put a ton of thought into it because it's such a template um, it's such an easy thing for a golf course to do and make a little bit of money on the side. Um, and if you really force people to just put that extra piece in, all of a sudden, instead of wasting the hundreds of hours you had creating that event, well, now you've got something more mission specific. A hundred percent. I mean, like, yeah. I go to events <laughs> all the time, and either I find them over-programmed or under-programmed. Right. There's a really nice sweet spot, and it's like, it doesn't take anything away from the golf experience, but to have that be like, oh, wow, this is what someone's life is like. It is a subtle but important add-on so that when you do your follow-up calls, yeah. which you do, you do follow-up calls to all your attendees yeah. and thank them for joining <laughs> and ask them to make a gift. Um, yeah. You can have a conversation about that. And, and that's a touch point that then they, they, they have with, I mean, and I have, again, I've been to tons of these where I'm like, who, what's happening? Who is this for? What is this for? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. such a wasted opportunity. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that applies not only to golf, but oh, yeah. I mean, to so many event uh, focused fundraisers, right? I, I know for us, you know, in our, in our first five years, you know, we, we primarily fundraise through events. Um, and the issue with that was that, you know, people were coming to the events and they were giving money, but they would become one-time donors. It, it wasn't until they attended a second or third event that, that, that we were finally able to kind of get them at, at that point where they could be advocates for the issue um, and they could really understand. And I think that, you know, um, that, that point that you made, Peter, about, um, you know, being able to integrate some of that experience into said event um, without taking away from the networking aspects and the drinking and, you know, all the, the, all the other stuff that people come there for, right? Um, you know, kind of is, is super important um, because oftentimes when you, when, when you are um, a, a nonprofit that, you know, may, maybe you don't have grant funding or maybe, you know, you, you want to diversify your revenue, events are a really good way to go to do that um, because it, it helps you build out your donor list. Um, I love to, yes. Yeah, sorry, not to like get too fine any gritty on this yeah. one, but um, you said over-programmed or under-programmed. What does it mean for it to be over-programmed? Just, just, as, <laughs> yeah. just as she was just saying, people are at yeah. events to network, have fun, drink, talk, yep. and learn about something, hopefully. Yep. <laughs> but you'll notice that in the order of priorities, um, even for events that I go to, and I go to, I generally make, will make a donation to every event I go to just because I'm like, I know this is for a I cause. I to receiving <laughs> <laughs> This isn't an event. <laughs> um, um, uh, 
but I want space to be able, because I usually will go with a friend or I'm going to meet a friend or whatever, and I want to have an opportunity to chat and talk with people and meet people. And sometimes there's speech after speech after yeah. speech after talk after yeah. talk after. We've speech. made that mistake. That and people are just like, it's also yeah. seven o'clock at night. They've had a long day. Yeah. It's over programmed. I, if I'm doing a two hour event, like I, I'm doing a two hour event in a couple of nights, I am doing 20 minutes of programming. Mm -hmm. It, that is it. And I time it and I have a run of show. Nothing is done accidentally in events either. Everything is programmed exactly. Mm -hmm timed when your courses come out when your appetizers when your drinks are done mm -hmm. um i've spent a lot of time doing fundraising and events so um i'm very particular about that and i know that not everyone has that capacity but it should be very thoughtfully done and the amount of time that people are spending listening to something or experiencing something should be the right balance now again depending on the issue area or the event or the venue you'll have to tweak that to get that right to the sweet spot but again um it's all about balancing out what people's desires are. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we all have, especially in DC, right? Um, Kate, yes. Uh, sort of actually is a follow up um, about grassroots change makers um, versus the philanthropy field. So for so many people who are doing grassroots um, organizing and advocacy work, like they're over-programming their events because it's their lived experience. So like as an LGBT organizer, I was an organizer for a really long time before I knew philanthropy existed. And so by the time I finally figured out that there were rooms with people with money in them somewhere and that I was doing the work of living my life and doing the organizing, I didn't particularly know what to say to be taken seriously by people who are able to go to these kind of events, learn about an advocacy um, issue, and then move on with their day, because it's so deeply meaningful to the people doing the work. So how, what is the best way for people who uh, are unfunded change makers to be taken seriously by funders in those spaces and not seem you know, like over-programming boring people to the point where they can't get their point across and people just see it as a very complicated issue that somebody else <laughs> should probably solve. Yeah. I can answer, I can yeah. start that, but I, I'm sure we all have <laughs> yeah, different I mean, experiences yeah. with that. I would also say, it's a difficult question to answer. It is a difficult question to answer, but what I will say from my experience is that I think about my audience. I look at my list. I really study my list I and I look at too. every oh, single person's title and what organization they're from. Yeah. Um, so again, for this event, I looked at the list and I was like, well, I can't get too deep into program because this is too general of an audience with very different um, interests. And again, I do research on, again, it depends on the, the event, but I do research on every single one of the people. Just most people have something out there on LinkedIn or something mm -hmm. on the internet. Yep. You just want to know who your audience is. Mm -hmm. So if it's an audience of your peers, you can get into the weeds and get into that sort of deeper discussion on advocacy issues. And I encourage you to because that's your, you're speaking to your peers, you're speaking to your people and you can have an actual converse, uh, conversation discussion there. When I'm looking at a list and it's a broader list of people that I'm trying to pull into my world, I change, my, I change the, the, the program, I change the pitch, I change how I'm talking about it. Um, again, that's, that's just how I think about it. I change, think about the size of the audience. If it's 10 people, you can also do something very different than you're doing with 40 people. So it's all about thinking about what your audience looks like and what their backgrounds are and therefore changing how you're speaking. Any yeah, exactly. Code switching is the name of the game. Yeah, I mean, I, ditto. I, I mean, it's one of those things where if you were to I'll use a game 
a story, I suppose. Um, if you were playing a game against people and you wanted to know how to beat them in a game, you study them, mm -hmm. right? You study what their, their characteristics are. And so understanding who's in the room is really important to kind of figure out your next move. Um, and I think if you can somehow pass that ideology along to other people, you get a really interesting conversation going because they're all sort of reading each other in the room and trying to figure out how you can work together. I try to foster interaction as well. Like, I mean, I think a lot of events you spend the whole time feel like you're being talked at. I, I had a client a couple of years ago. Um, he would spend, we would have, we would organize a breakfast fundraiser. He was a, he was a member of Congress and he would spend, you know, 45 minutes of the hour of breakfast fundraiser talking at people and then with a mouthful, got any questions? And then it's like, oh, it's 930, it's time to go. You know, so, uh, you know, but one of the people I work with now, like we, it was like speak for two minutes and then open it up for conversation. So we try to, like, we really try to, I try to encourage like complete interaction. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think sometimes that yeah. throws the programming piece a little bit, you know, into whack. But, um, but um, I, I it, you then, it, it, I think it fosters a, a different, a, a different style. I think it fosters just a, a healthier environment. Yeah. So. There's a level of trust, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's like you walk in, knowing that you know that you can you, you can talk, you can you can say something. It's it's not you know it doesn't work in every environment, but you know. But I think you know if you if you in most most situations, I think it's fine. So yeah, I actually have an answer to that too. Um, so a few years ago, I wrote an article in HuffPost about authentic networking, and one of the one of the key um, the key pieces that. I wrote about was um, j just as you said, building trust and finding a connection. So, you know, instead of thinking of the people in the room as funders, right? Like, you know, a as this like robotic like entity, you know, think of them as people just like you. Um, you know, find a connection, find something in common. You know, um, talk about you know where 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 they grew up. Talk about you know where you went to school. Talk about what you studied. I mean, talk about things that 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 is you know that where you can find common ground, right? Um, and then maybe get their card and follow up later to talk about the nitty gritty. Um, that's always been my strategy, right, is, you know, trying to have, have real authentic connections with people so that they remember me as a person um, instead of just what I do. Because nine times out of ten, they're not going to remember the name of my organization. They may not even remember my name, but they're going to remember how I made them feel, right? Um, and I think that that's key. I learned that in sales. I learned that in fundraising. And, you know, I think it's carried throughout my life that, it's, it's something you need to do all the time. Well, and you, you mentioned that because I think what's, what's fascinating, uh, you know, as, as fundraisers, you're, you're kind of drilled into like never, never miss the opportunity for the ask. Yeah. And it's like sometimes it's, it's just not appropriate to make the ask. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, sometimes yeah. it's like it's just you're, you're sitting there and you're having a beer and you're talking about your kids. Yeah. And that's it. Like, you're not, and then you, because you know that ask is going to come down the road or you're going to have the opportunity, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of reading that window, yeah. you know, um, and I think that's really important. I think that, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's like you're just drilled, like, you know, like it, it, it's a myopic approach of how you have to do it. It's, it's not always the way. I mean, yeah, it's like yeah. there's, you know, and, um, you know, and sometimes it's it's not the person that is best suited to make the ask isn't the principal in the room. It's right. it's, it's someone else. So Absolutely. it's you know it, it's I think in that case it, it it's really I think knowing that is is really important yeah. as well. Right, right. And um, you know because this this symposium you know we're we're talking about innovative and creative fundraising. Um, I I really kind of want to ask a question for all three of you 
in that, um, you know, throughout your careers, I mean, what are some of the ways in which you've seen people get creative when it comes to fundraising and, you know, kind of, um, kind of be able to, to go off the beaten path in terms of how they're, not only how they're raising money, but how they're structuring their organizations, um, you know, to bring in revenue? I can take it. Sure, I can start. Yeah. Um, and I think this is also a growing trend, which is which is a good thing. Is uh, I've seen a lot of um, founders build in um, sustainable revenue sources from the beginning. So um, when I was talking about uh, uh, equity or or loans, um, we're the, the per clients that I'm working with are really looking at a lot of um, uh, apps, and so. These apps are commercially licensed, but fully, but wholly owned by the nonprofit, mm -hmm. and so the revenue from the apps goes to the nonprofit yeah. to the point that they are projecting, fingers crossed, that they will actually no longer need um, uh, philanthropic support in three years, right. which is phenomenal. And again, not everyone is going to have that level of luck. I mean, they just happen to do something that worked really well, and yeah. the timing is really good. But the fact that they had this built in right away was also what was so attractive to our clients. They were like, oh, if I make a half million dollar donation here, I'll never have to make another donation against this organization. Great, that's, right. that's even better. So a lot of them are, a lot of, again, the clients that, I'm looking, that I've been working with are, like the idea of them, there being some sort of uh, commercial aspect to the, the organizations that they're, they're funding. So it's not just philanthropy, because philanthropy can be both amazing and really capricious and so you don't want to be ever be in the situation where you're fully dependent on it or on grants on or or on individuals and so having this other source that is um either based on your intellectual capital your property your whatever um in one case it was um a charity had a uh whatchamacallit a, a secondhand store that brought in hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I didn't think it would work, but it does, and it's amazing. And so some of those other things that I've seen have been creative and smart. Those are large ones, I, um, I, obviously, but still. <laughs> right. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, at least, so from the Family Foundation, one of the prompts that I always sort of keep rehashing with the group when we come together twice a year is, let's say over a course of a particular cycle, we'll get 100 proposals. We accept 10. So how much good work are we doing if we're rejecting 90? You know, how much time is going into that? If they really are doing their research and they're learning about who they're applying to, that's a, that's a huge ask that you're asking these 90 groups to basically get a no. Uh, and so trying to figure out how can you create the sustainable sources of, of revenue and a lot of the organizations, and it does depend on sort of what your organization is focused on, but they have these other levers that they can they can pull. And, and using events and using ways to get every stakeholder in the organization involved in every single thing they do is usually the one that's most efficient. You know, if you're going to go have a huge gala for 500 people and only seven people were a part of that process and then the 500 there don't come away with anything, that's a lot of inefficiency. Yeah. Um, and so the, the efficient groups are usually the ones that I see as most successful, especially in the event space. I would say being adept to like what's current, we, I, I, you know, I, I was, I mean, I'm gonna kind of use it the political standpoint. I was working with a candidate two years ago that was running against Steve King in Iowa. And, and Steve King is this awful racist. 
and, um, yes. and he decided he, he went on Twitter and was talking about you know that we can't you know we can't build America back with other people's babies. Mm -hmm. Well, this candidate who was running against him literally raised a hundred thousand dollars off Twitter in the course of a month um, off of that. Like spent oh, wow. like three weekends just banging it out. And I'd never seen that platform perform that way. So we tested out something the next month. At the end of well, at the end of March, we, we you know we, we took all this data and we resolicited these people via email, and then three weeks later we resolicited them by mail, and the response was astoundingly low. Yeah. These people really performed on Twitter, and that was it. So I, I think yeah, I, I, I think that's my point is that watching the you know being able to kind of like anticipate what models are out there, what's working well. Um, you, you saw it, I would say ten. 12 years ago with email uh, and when Dave and I worked together you know in 2005 you know we didn't drop that many email solicitations I mean a lot of our email was just kind of big picture stuff exactly you know so you know so watching you know watching kind of the shifts and in, in models and what's you know and what's working and what's not working it, it has been really fascinating and you know it's like and now you know you're now seeing it with Instagram you're now seeing it with yeah. snapchat you know what's kind of that next piece that's gonna, that's going to drive that's going to drive donor engagement because I, I think what that's been the mo that's been the most fascinating piece watching kind of watching the arc of, of where you know where people get engaged and you know and I think email I think the national party structures have destroyed email for a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you know, when you get twenty even, a day. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, 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 when, and, and when you're even when you're over programming, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're all in Steve Kane emergency now. Like, exactly. Yeah. There's always an emotional call to action. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and even and, 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 and you're seeing it with nonprofits too. Yes. They're, they're still taking, you know, so every month is, you know, every month is for $5,000 shy of our budget. Yes, exactly. Can you, yeah. can you put, you know, it, so it, it, it's went from quarters to months to, to all the time. So, you know, one of the things that, that I think that's fascinating that I'm seeing now is more long form emails. And, uh, and it started with, uh, it started with a handful of people. Um, O'Rourke did it last year a lot in Texas, but I'm curious to see how that starts to play out. Yeah, like a long, oh, like this long, 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 almost like you're writing a letter to yeah, someone, Yeah, like this right? long yeah. six paragraph email, and then right at the bottom, it's like this, like this, you know, the, these two links, you know? it doesn't feel like a solicitation. Yeah. It exactly. feels like a conversation. So, um, so I've seen those. I don't, I don't really, don't have any metrics to kind of gauge performance, but I, but it's it, it's I think, you know, it is. I, I guess the bigger picture is, you know, is like you want to be able to adapt. You want to be able to kind of just, you know, you know, know what's out there and and what you're willing to try. So uh, uh, when Chris and I worked together, he was one of my first bosses in fundraising, uh, and there was no there was no Twitter. Uh, Facebook was only barely uh, a thing, and in fact, we did. I don't actually remember. Or we hired Jeff at some point to send emails. Yeah, no, no he, yeah, he was. We didn't know we were didn't really know how to do it before that. Uh, <laughs> but we was. Uh, I remember. I, so I, we, every month we would we would send about a thousand letters. Yeah. To a big list, and we and I kept track of the return rate. We had a six percent return. Six percent of the people who got letters uh, made some kind of gift. So we had a very that's a high that was a high rate for us back then. That rate, I just saw a benchmark that Kay showed me. The average rate for folks, which is mostly now email campaigns, uh, 0.06%. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we were what, what? That? That's like a thousand times higher. Yeah. Uh, and, and growth of advocacy, like email.
No lists. Well, there's there, there's a lot of reasons. But there's there's yeah. uh, there's a lot more proliferations of lists. If Mailchimp exists. Yes. Um, there's a lot more people that have uh, right access to, to things. It's a lot easier to um, to set up a website. Uh, back in 2005, setting up a website was a, was a process. Right. We wanted to look good and professional. That's why we had to hire Jeff. Uh, how do you? I'm I'm really curious because I I left and I I went off and I I've done most of my uh, fundraising off of methods that didn't even exist when you originally talked to this stuff. How have you uh, yourself kept up your own professional development? Um, it's been surprising. Like the Twitter thing threw me for a loop because I remember yeah. a conversation. Remember a conversation in 2008 with someone who was older than I am now. He's like, Hey, do any of your clients do email fundraising? Like I'm. You know, I, I'm just not used to it. I, 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 know, I know Obama's doing it a lot, but mm -hmm. I don't really know. Like, yeah. I mean, could you guys help with that? For, sure, absolutely. We do it all the time, you know? <laughs> and, then, um, and then, you know, nine, ten years later, I'm having the conversation with someone about Twitter, and I'm completely, like, realizing I am behind the curve. That I, you know, that I, that we, that we had, not, you know, using Kim's, watching Kim maximize it the way she maximized it was incredible. But what was so surprising is that when you when you took the the traditional models and you applied to that same data, it completely fell apart. Um, and and you know and she dropped out of the race in May, so we didn't really have a chance to to test it out repeatedly, you know, to kind of go back to Twitter. I mean, but but you know to show the you know to to pull in the tally that she pulled in in, in March, um, at the end of the first fundraising quarter in the off year was was. You know, it was incredible, and then you know, and then we just we, we kind of shut it down in, in a month and a half later. But it, it's been. Um, I've also realized that you know, there's no shame in hiring someone that if you don't know what you're doing. And for a handful of my clients, I'll try to recommend. Like I, I, I don't have the experience doing X, but I know good people who do. Yeah. And I think that sometimes people, you know, people don't want to spend money. I, I, one of the I think one of the biggest challenges I've seen with some of my nonprofit work is that. You know, I hired you to do this. Well, why are you telling me I need to now hire somebody else? And it's like, well, I'm helping you build your program, and it help. You know, if you're really talking about a comprehensive program, let's talk about digital strategy. Let's talk about what what a Facebook campaign would look like, or or Google ads would look like. I, I I can't create those for you, but there are good people out there that can. So I think you know, I think for me personally, that's been. You know, that's been the key is just acknowledging what I know and don't know yeah. and then and, and but also not being so you know like caught up in my own systems that I'm not willing to try I mean because the, the, like I said the Twitter thing just blew me away like that was that was insane that that happened it was, it was, it was $25 contributions I mean yeah. these were these were this was people get angry on Twitter exactly so yeah and and and, and <laughs> And unfortunately, there's not been there's not been another client that I've kind of really had the opportunity to test that with, but um, but it it's it, it's definitely out there for sure. Yeah. So, what is, uh, your what would you say is your? I always thought you were best on the phone. Let somebody else ask that question. Yeah, I, I think we have another question. Uh, are you still on the phone mostly? Like when you actually do the fundraising? <laughs> yes and no. I mean. Um, it's now, I think email, like one-on-one -on -one email has gotten so much easier, you know, um, but it, yeah, it's still, it's still a, a decent amount of phone calls for sure, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah Second question. What are some of the like hotter issues that are being funded these days, trending issues or issues that either, you know, weren't being funded or are getting some funding now? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I can, I can speak from just the Family Foundation side. Um, post-2016, mm -hmm. human services, our proposal spiked 500%. Human services is sort of a catch-all, but right. But but uh, more specifically, like what what sectors within? So it was a lot of um, immigration mm. themed, uh, a lot of homeless shelters. Yeah. Um, okay. It was a lot of sort of human. I mean, it was it, it is kind of what you would expect. It was like anti-platform 2016. So <laughs> right, right. Um, it was really interesting. And our committee, we have committees on different different topics and. Um, they were like, this is impossible. There's no way we can do justice to this many proposals. And so we had to sort of restructure our whole look. And the last oh. two years has been trying to figure out how do we put more people on this committee because we know we're going to get more. Right, right. They called it the Trump jump in the nonprofit fundraising benchmarks. Right. Like there was a Trump jump in, fund in uh, getting money, and now it's a Trump dump. Like you're way yeah. less email. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Um, I mean, I think it's safe to assume that if he does win next year, like in 2024, there will be a, a shift back. Yeah. But uh, but still, I mean, like, how do we? How do you? How do you keep up the same level of, you know, you know, like push and, and and fight and just not wear yourself down in the process? Yeah. I mean, how, what are the, how do the next five years play out? You know. Right. Right. Absolutely. Hmm. That's, a, I mean, resilience and sustainability for individuals is also really important. And being able to, uh, as many founders and activists, you know, burn and you do get burned out. It's hard to sustain um, the same level of uh, of action and anger, frankly, um, that that can sometimes be that motivator. Um, so uh, yes, that's a very. It's like the societal norms were like we were just. It's like you know. It's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what they talked about with the Titanic, you know, it's like, you know, everything leading up to the Titanic, we, we, we knew what life was like. And then the Titanic sank and everything kind of fell apart. And, you know, it's kind of like Trump, you know, like everything leading up to 2016, we, we had accepted normalities. And, yes. and now it's, we don't. And now, you know. And, and, and that's, that's um, we're going on a little bit of a tangent, but I actually have found that to be a really positive change in my life as well. Absolutely. It was an absolute nightmare, and I cried for a month straight, no joke, yep. especially as a person of color. And I literally was like, I had gone from crying of tears of happiness because the first black president was elected, which I literally never thought and ever would happen in my lifetime. And I had accepted that, and it wasn't like something that made me sad. But to go from that and then, you know, yeah, the assumptions right. that I had about right. where, where the world was right. and to, to sort of have that shift. Anyway, it really propelled my own um, uh, desire to educate others on, on issues that don't face them personally. Because none of the people I work with have any idea what most people's lives are like. Yeah. And, and so I, I am fortunate that I get to have that, that role to like sort of be like, well, have you looked at it from this perspective, yeah. perhaps, and try to bring them, try to bring them along um, with those different uh, social issues. And that's, I think, the benefit of that next generation. Yes, it's like exactly. Sort of coming of age, you know, seeing, you know, um, you know, seeing the ugliness. Exactly. And, you know, and that's, they're going to vote that they're way. Propelled. When, when it comes time to vote, they're going to if if they go to the voting booth, they're going to vote the right way, and I think that's the benefit of it. But I mean, it's also the you know getting them to the voting booth. Yeah. Getting yeah. To, I, I have a friend that's a, a lesbian in West Virginia who may have some form of cancer, and she's like, "Oh, I don't vote. It doesn't really." And it's like, "You're the person they're trying to kill. Like, what is wrong with you?" <laughs> you know, she's like, "It doesn't matter." And I, I was like, "We're having this conversation over Facebook chat." I'm like, I, "I gotta go." Like, I'm, you know, but it's just like you're old enough. Like, you're 30 plus years old. You know, like, how do you not get this? And and so you know, but but then I think about you know, I, I think about you know. You know, um, you know, my nephew who will be 18 in a couple of years, and it's like, you know, like he's engaged, and yeah. you know, and, and it's like, I'm hoping you vote the right way, but so it's like, I, I, hopefully they save us, hopefully yeah. the kids save us, you know, that's, I mean, you know, someone needs to. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we have about 10 minutes left. Um, it's 4:50 in the panel. Um, we would love to commence at five to uh, make sure everyone is is uh, on schedule. Um, but I would really like to kind of ask a final question to you all. Um, and, that, and, and that final question sort of revolves around storytelling. So that, that's been a common theme I've, I've noticed throughout this panel, um, is talking about the importance of getting people um, who, who may live a, in, in a completely different reality to see um, you know, the, the other side of the fence, right? 
Um, so I'd love to kind of uh, ask you all about um, ways in which you've seen people tell their stories. I, I, I know you gave that one example of um, you know how you know you're, you're using game and you're using gamification um, to, to kind of bring people into that realm. But I, I'd love to hear other examples of that and uh, you know where, where you think that's going. Um, I know I'll, I'll just give one quick example of, of what I've seen. Um, so um, I, I was recently in the Rohingya camps um, in, in, uh, on the Bangladesh and Myanmar border, um, and uh, there was um, there was another NGO that that was using uh, live streaming, and they were live streaming people in in the refugee camps um, to try to get them to see what life was like, um, you know, taking taking people you know in, 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 into you know homes and things like that, um, you know, in food distribution centers. Um, so 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 kind of along those lines, um, you know. What, what have you seen and where do you think this is going? To, to kind of keep people, as, 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 as you all mentioned, keep people engaged and, and motivated um, you know, to, to want to be engaged in these issues. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll jump on that only because I'm leaving tomorrow morning to go to um, a, a, the conference our organization puts on and we are doing four different sessions, one of which is six hours long on sto storytelling for impact. Um, I think that we've seen this shift in the sector as a whole. I'm, you're seeing it with nonprofits as well as for-profits and philanthropy. So I think that, ironically, in this day and age of, of, of metrics and numbers, I think people do realize that we've gotten too far away from humanity. And so bringing back the human and individual um, stories that resonate um, is really important. So I've been seeing that across the board. Um, it's really hard to tell an effective story. And um, so I'm not gonna be the person to, to, to say how to do it, but there are great resources out there, even in terms of the word choice you use for certain issues, like the opportunity agenda and um, color of colors of change, color for change, um, are a couple of organizations that I follow online, and they, again, are prescriptive in the language that, are, that you use to talk about poverty, to talk about education, to talk about race. It is so, it has changed the way that I think about that because you, you hear these things and people trigger. They have a response that's emotional and personal right away and so they're not able to look at issues subjectively. Yeah. And so when you're telling a story, even about a person yeah. who is waiting on a, a line or who didn't grow up well off or whatever, um, changing that story to, to, to make it appeal, frankly, to the other person, um, is really important to engage them. So uh, again, this is a shift I'm seeing across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Opportunity Agenda, um, Frameworks Institute is another one. Frameworks is here and they've been doing the research and writing on this for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then Colors of Change, I, uh, Color for Change. Color for Change. I'm sorry. No, no, I think it is Color for Change. I'm sure uh, both organizations I, and, but, but one of those two, one of those two also uses talks a lot about word choice in um, discussions about race and equity. Oh. I, I worked at Frameworks Institute. Oh, you did? Oh. I, I'm I'm obsessed with frameworks. Come, come and talk to me if you want any more information about language and storytelling. Yeah. It's so it's amazing. Kudos. Yeah. <laughs> I love that organization. Um. I, I mean, having sort of transitioned not so long ago to f more of the sort of philanthropic, social entre enterprise type of space, 
I'm really starting to see a lot more people focus on sort of giving the agency to young folks mm -hmm. um, to try to create that change themselves. And whether or not that venture is successful doesn't really matter. It's more the process of you know, going through, building an idea, communicating to people, figuring out who's in the room, sort of everything that's been said today. Um, and I think that really makes for a dynamic communicator. Right, and I think that's really important. It's something that I'm certainly trying to integrate into game making and not have that sort of bias put on the game of, oh, I'm trying to go after liberal agenda or conservative agenda. I'm coming at it with a, here's this really boring algorithm that's sitting underneath this game. It's just how you play. And we're gonna have a conversation that sort of sculpts the actual experience. Um, and so organizations that are focused on social enterprise and, and really going to the student level, I think is sort of the thing that I've been most excited to follow. I don't know if I have a really good example, but I, 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 I mean, I think I have, you know, I think the, there, there has to be an authentic piece to it when you're, when you're trying to, you know, tell that story. And we try to weave it into, you know, grant proposals as well as email solicitations, that you, you know, because if, if you, I mean, the, the whole cookie cutter approach that's happened with emails has, has I think, kind of, you know, made you know made email solicitation awful but if you can somehow weave in something that feels you know if it's something that feels real that's not you know the lights are being turned off tomorrow you know that, that I think that's a, a interesting a really interesting uh, approach to it and also I think with the grant piece I, I don't really know if I have much to add on that but I, I think what one of the things we've always tried to do is just be really authentic with with the narrative and just you know like what what it is we're, we're trying to accomplish and what it is we, we've done you know yeah. so one of my board members recently told me that um, you know something something she thought we were doing wrong is that we were talking about girls as a demographic and we weren't talking about um, you know the the, uh, the the specific issues that 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 girls faced in a way that made them uh, that that sort of degrouped them I guess you could say out, out, out from being this nebulous group, right? Mm -hmm. To you know, sort of sort of painting a picture of you know the barriers that they face. So 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 I think if you know, like I could kind of have one takeaway from that. The takeaway would be um, you know to focus less on less on the issue and less on the numbers and less on the you know sixty percent of X population and more on the um, you know did you know that you know five out of every ten girls um, that, that that you come across every day face X issue. Right, right, um, and sort of painting it in that, in, in, in that way. Um, so, anyway, mm, uh, terrific. Yeah, uh, I, I personally, I would listen to the four of you talk for a great deal longer. I'm sure there's people who have to that. Perhaps even one of the four.